Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Does your dad know the dude? Yes. <laughs> Can we get the dude on the list. Can wings? we now call him the dad? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. Um, and, and we were going to talk today about enthusiasm. Uh, because as, um, as, as, as Donald Trump has lagged in the polls fairly substantially, uh, this has come to be sort of something he's hung his hat on. His campaign put out a memo uh, showing, I mean, which I think is true, that there is more... Trump enthusiasm detectable in the polls than there is for Biden, saying that the candidate with the more enthusiasm uh, almost always wins. Admittedly, like the exception to that rule was that you had to go all the way back in time to the 2012 election (laughs) to find a case of the less enthusiastic candidate winning. I have uh, uh, relocated to to coastal Maine, which very excitedly is a swing area. This is a county that voted for Barack Obama twice, but voted for Trump in 2016. Uh, Joe Biden's hoping to win it back. It is definitely true that like a non-trivial number of people out here have uh, Donald Trump signs in their lawn or Trump bumper stickers. And you see some like old Hillary H's or some Bernie stuff from different uh, eras. But like there's no there's no Biden merch around. Uh, We were talking about uh, Twitter and uh, the K-Hive earlier. There are no real I shouldn't say there are no Biden stands on Twitter, but like it's two people. Right. right. I, I generally walking around D.C., um, I saw a, a car where the entire back of the car was just Joe Biden stickers and Joe Mentum stickers. And my first conclusion is that is a person who works for the Biden campaign. But Matt, I want to go into because you wrote a really interesting piece on the enthusiasm gap with Latino voters. But we should start first and foremost by talking a little bit. It seems obvious to ask this question, but why is enthusiasm an important metric? An enthusiastic vote and an unenthusiastic vote still count the same way. And looking back at 2012, which I think is actually an interesting comparison point because the 2012 election was one in which Obama is like, okay, 
So things did not go quite as planned, but you still had the idea of Obama. And I think that what you're seeing from the Trump campaign now is kind of the idea of 2016 Trump, uh, which has led to the Trump campaign basically pretending that Joe Biden is currently president, which has been interesting. But Matt, could you explain a little bit more about why does enthusiasm matter politically? Yeah, I mean, it, well, one possibility is that it doesn't matter. Right, which is, I think that that's my view I've started to take. <laughs> but so I do think there's a couple areas where it could matter in theory. Um, and the question is, will it matter in practice, right? One is that there's a ladder of political engagement of which voting is sort of the lowest rung, but donating money to a campaign is another rung. Volunteering for a campaign is probably an even higher rung. Um, doing things like, um, as far as we can tell, things like public displays of support do have some electoral impact. So it's like the signs are both an indicator of enthusiasm, but also themselves have some kind of impact. And then I think, you know, wh when I was looking at, at, at sort of the, the Latino electorate, although other low propensity uh, voting groups, it, it matters because there's like an adage in life, right, that enthusiasm is contagious, right? And so like one question is always like, why does anyone ever vote for anybody? Right. Because like, yes, it's important and like civics and blah, 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 blah. But the odds that your vote will matter are so infinitesimal. Most states like aren't even swing states. It's, it's not a super duper rational calculus. And consequently, like tons of people don't vote. Like I think around half of people typically don't vote. But for those of us who do vote, it's like you vote either out of some basic habit. Like, I always vote. I'm a super voter. But the people who only sometimes vote, I think it's very plausible that what their more politically engaged friends are saying and doing and signaling is itself relevant, right? So it's like, if I am voting dutifully, then somebody who is less dutiful is likely to not vote at all. Whereas if I'm like enthusiastic, I'm talking to my friends all the time about how great this is. I'm sharing all the memes. I'm wearing the t-shirt, right? Like that builds more sort of like, you've got to do this. You've got to go kind of get on the bandwagon. And, you know, Biden is not, as far as we can tell, I mean, he's at a financial disadvantage to Trump, but his fundraising is good. Right. And a lot of Democratic Senate candidates are doing well. So I think in the most concrete sense, like, Democrats are probably going to brush this off because that's where you would, a, a campaigns like to raise money um, and they would be upset. Right. If you were leading in the polls, but somehow couldn't raise any funds at all, you would worry that your lead is going to go away because you get buried in attack ads. And that doesn't seem to be like a, a proximate issue at the moment. I mean, I think that there's also the very relevant fact that this is not going to be a normal election because normal elections don't happen during pandemics. Like, we don't know what the state of COVID-19 is going to be in early November. But given that, A, even as of a month or six weeks ago, there was concern that a summer lull would be followed by a, you know, like a second wave in fall. And B, the fact that uh, we don't have the summer lull in much of the U.S. This is an election that's going to have you know, more people wary about going physically to the polls and waiting in line than most 
of them have. And it's an election that's going to have, you know, we've already seen uh in some cases bipartisan, in some cases only pushed by Democrats, efforts to radically expand voting by mail to make it, you know, to expand access to voting alternatively to just showing up on Election Day. And in that case, it actually makes sense that enthusiasm might matter a little more because you're raising the activation barrier to voting. If you're going to vote by mail, you're going to have to request a mail-in ballot in advance or request an absentee ballot those are hard things that are that require a little more forethought and a little more prior commitment to just like waiting and seeing how you feel on election day. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if a I mean, that's going to be a bigger problem for lower propensity voting groups and for the candidates that rely on them. Um, but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if a particularly motivated electorate is going to be more likely to request those mail in ballots in advance. The other complicating factor here, of course, is that taking mitigation efforts against COVID-19 at both the political and personal level has become super politicized. And so we are seeing and, you know, kind of isolated evidence of Republicans being much less likely to request and use mail-in ballots than Democrats are. So where I kind of run up against the enthusiasm question here is, yeah, Donald Trump has voters who would you know, there's like this quote that a Trump representative gave a reporter in one of the wave of articles about, you know, why Trump is about Trump privately being very concerned about his polling numbers saying, you know, our our base would walk through fire for Donald Trump. No one would walk through fire for Joe Biden. Like that is true. You know, whether they will take personal risks in the midst of a pandemic to vote for Donald Trump is less clear and whether they are going to do the most likely the the thing that is easiest to do to avoid the you know the health risk while still voting because that's been turned into a you know a ripe for voter fraud only democrats do it tactic is also unclear so i i went back a little bit to the, it feel uh, it was funny reading this piece because it feels like it was written 6000 years ago but it was written in the first week of march by 538 talking about the enthusiasm gap uh for biden and in comparison to uh bernie sanders the people who voted for bernie sanders were overwhelmingly enthusiastic for bernie sanders but not enough people voted for bernie sanders so I'm interested in this question because Dara mentions that you know, we're doing this election in the midst of a pandemic, but we're also doing something that I, I'm interested to see what you guys think about this, because I remember 2004, uh, I was in I was in high school and I remember that that campaign, Kerry's campaign was somewhat for John Kerry, but largely against Bush. And the enthusiasm numbers that we're seeing right now are people being extremely enthusiastic to vote against Donald Trump. But I'm interested to know and to see what what data we have on. We've talked a lot about negative polarization and kind of if, if there is such a term for negative enthusiasm. But I'd be interested in seeing you know, as Trump's numbers go down and as Trump seems to be overwhelmingly focused on not just his base, but like the basiest elements of his base, the base who's like, no, 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 we don't really care that much about infrastructure week. We're very mad about statues, which appears to be mostly a very online base. But I'm interested in that kind of the negative enthusiasm and what role that could potentially play in November. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like there's tremendous 
antipathy to Donald Trump, right? Like unprecedented. And, you know, we've had uh, George Floyd protests and, and Black Lives Matter marches, but a couple of years ago, we had these um, uh, national women's marches, right. which, you know, uh, I don't want to say that there was not a like content to the marches, but I think that those were really best understood as like pure anti-Trump kind of mobilization. And there was tremendous enthusiasm for that exercise, right? Like incredibly large numbers of people came out and wanted to go do that. Protests that were not spurred by like super specific issues or, or, or news events. 2018 had historic midterm turnout for Democrats. You've seen incredible levels of small donor mobilization all up and down the ballot. It's like there is a real um, anti-Trump political mobilization that has been happening for, for years. Something the Trump campaign's memo actually led me to think about for the first time is like they were saying, um, okay, the candidate with the more enthusiasm has won every time except in 2012. So if you then break that down, that means in 2000, Al Gore got more votes, but he lost enthusiasm. In 2004, Bush won votes and enthusiasm. In 2008, Obama won votes and enthusiasm. In 2012, Obama got more votes, but had less enthusiasm. In 2016, Hillary got more votes, but had less enthusiasm. And that just sort of starts to seem like a pattern where there is structurally less enthusiasm for Democrats, even, even when more people prefer them, which might just be a sort of straightforward consequence of the coalition being more diverse. And it's like, it's harder to be inspiring to all different segments of the Democratic Party coalition simultaneously. And the only person who like ever did that was Barack Obama, who like in one of his two races, not like all the time, right? And he didn't stop being a good public speaker or like a charismatic person or the historic first black president, but it was like that very special nexus of circumstances, um, which was special. Like I, I remember in DC election night, you know, I went out of my house, all the like young white gentrifier people on U Street were out partying, as were all of the African Americans of, of all ages who, who lived, it was a blacker neighborhood at that time. And it was great. It was like all kinds of Democrats were like so fucking happy about Barack Obama. But that's like a really weird kind of circumstances. Whereas Republicans, it's like, if you got like some white guy and he wins, like, Republicans are really excited about that. And I just don't know if, like, Democrats can, can do that. Like, can you be all things to all people in, like, a self-consciously diverse political party? This is also relevant because Republicans are the party that, you know, as that, like, certainly in the pre-Trump era was relying less on those kind of intermediate uh, levels of involvement to motivate other people. Like the ground game has always been has 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 in recent memory been more important for Democrats than for Republicans because they're dealing with again a more diverse coalition, a coalition that involves that includes lower propensity voting groups uh, like Latino voters, like young voters, and having the bodies to execute that ground game depends on having people who are enthusiastic enough that they're going to like take more than the hour or several hours, depending on where you live, that it takes to vote. So it's not super clear to me what Republican enthusiasm on the margin has meant, you know, in a pre-2016 world. That said, 
one of the truths of you know, the 2016 election is that Donald Trump managed to turn out low propensity white voters. And it is true that there are people who probably wouldn't be motivated to vote who are going to be motivated to vote because Donald Trump is on the ballot. Whether there's anything that can be done to activate them more is really unclear. And this is where the Trump campaign's strategy to kind of keep that base as angry as possible starts to run into some some math problems because yes you can do that but if you've already gotten them as fired up as they're going to get and i haven't seen any argument that there are dis- disaffected trump voters who can be reactivated by this culture war stuff then the question becomes how many people are you assuming aren't going to show up just because they don't love joe biden how much is this actually assuming that there's going to be other kinds of suppression involved, that it's going to be harder for voters in heavily black areas to vote than it is for white voters because of, you know, state restrictions on when on polling places and and voting hours. How much are you assuming that your people are just going to be less turned off by the coronavirus than, you know, Democratic voters are like there do seem to be a lot of assumptions about uh election day behavior that aren't just about enthusiasm, but are about all of the other factors that we think about when we talk about turnout. Like if you're they're essentially betting that everything happens up to and including it's raining on election day, because we know that that suppresses turnout among low propensity voter blocks. And I'm not super sure that all of those assumptions can hold, which is, again, why it kind of raises the question of, are you actually just assuming that states will do more to limit and suppress voting? One thing that that you mentioned there was you said you haven't seen evidence of like a disaffected Trump voter block out there. And and I know, Jane, like you've done some some pieces on a kind of social conservative grumbling about John Roberts. I mean, I guess Trump is one of the grumblers. So it's not clear where that disaffection lies. But like, what, what have you learned? It's important to recognize that when we're talking about Trump voters, that there's kind of the, I, I put it as there are Trump voters who like bought the album and there are Trump voters who bought the album and follow them on tour, follow him on tour, which is literally true. There are people who follow Trump rallies across the country or did before the pandemic hit. Like there are like the true fans or stands as it may be. And those are, those are different groups of people. And so I am, when I'm talking about the disaffected Trump voter, I am not referring to the people who are like super hardcore all in and are now like, no, no, no more. That's not that many people. And that is certainly not enough to win a presidential election with. But what I have in the conversations I've had, there have been, Trump has a challenging job in many ways, which is that the we don't think about it this much, but the GOP tent is a lot wider than we think it is. And as you know, the Democratic tent has also widened with people who feel as if they've been pushed out of the Republican Party by Trump. But Trump has brought in a bunch of people into Republican Party politics who probably never thought of themselves as being, quote unquote, conservative before. And so what you're seeing now is that a lot of social conservatives who are very focused on the Supreme Court, which is what I wrote about most recently, are very disappointed because the, you know, and it's not just Trump, it's 30 years of essentially being told that if you vote for these people, we will nominate these judges who've been approved by these conservative organizations. And ipso facto, eventually will overturn Roe versus Wade and other um, 
abortion precedents it, uh, before the Supreme Court and uh, you know, bring social conservatives back to the halls of power uh, conceivably. And that hasn't happened. And so I think that there's a sense among some social conservatives of a great disappointment with the entire plan on which the social conservative political project has rested. But what that has to do with Trump is that Trump in 2016, in response to Ted Cruz, who essentially argued uh, repeatedly that Trump couldn't be trusted with the votes of social conservatives and might even nominate his sister to the Supreme Court. So Trump made the Supreme Court a big part of his 2016 pitch. But if the Supreme Court doesn't, quote unquote, show up for social conservative voters, I talked to some people like, what's the point? Why would we even vote? They likely still will. This is a group that's a very consistent voting block. But I think that that gets to one of the things about politics is that it is inherently transactional. You vote for something with the hope that someone will do the thing that you want them to do. And for some Trump voters who voted for him for various reasons, a lot of those transactions have been, say, not paid And so I think that what you're seeing is that there are among the people who voted for Trump, not because they thought Trump was the coolest, most awesome person in the history of collective time, but for the people who were like, I'm very concerned about industrial policy. I'm concerned about fentanyl. I'm worried about immigration. There is, you know, and obviously there's been a lot that's happened that the Trump administration has done on all of those matters for good or for ill. But if you voted on those specific things and you were promised something and that didn't happen, it's not that you're going to go vote for Joe Biden. It's that you might not vote at all. And so I think that it's a challenging issue because I think that disaffection is sometimes hard to read in the voting populace because disaffected voters might still vote. I talked to some people who were saying, you know, I'll vote down ballot, but I'll leave the top part blank. You know, I won't I won't choose between Trump and Biden and anyone else. I just won't vote for president. Or these are people who used to give a ton of money to Club for Growth or a number of right wing organizations and they aren't doing that anymore. Or it looks like, you know, I used to have bumper stickers on my car for this and I don't anymore. And so all of that may not be obvious in um you know, what actually happens on election day in November or afterwards with all the mail-in ballots. But it does show a shift. You know, when you have a presidential campaign that was supposed to and is again focusing on the Supreme Court, and you're hearing from some social conservatives like, we've been focused on the Supreme Court for 35, 40 years, and what has that gotten us in their view? I think that that poses somewhat of a challenge. So my question about this is always, I mean, Given what we saw in 2016 and the total failure of elite conservatives to direct the party to choose a nominee who was satisfactory to elite conservatives at that time, like what's I'm kind of I find myself asking a them and what army question about any conservative constituency that like appears to be overrepresented among elite commentators and not have an identifiable voting block, right? Like, I'm genuinely, I think that it is absolutely plausible that the people who have been, who were fans of, you know, putting conservative judges on the court before it was cool, and who have tried to make their peace with Trump by saying, but judges, and are now realizing that John Roberts is less enthusiastic about overturning Roe v. Wade than they hoped he would be, that they might be having, you know, that that they may not vote for Trump in November. But A, 
very few of them, unlike the kind of ex-Republican Lincoln Project types, the Bill Crystal types, are saying, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden because it's extremely important we're going to get this man out of office. And it's like not entirely clear how many of them there are. So if we're talking about people who are, A, not having as like they're they're only having half the impact because they're not voting for Trump, but they're not voting for Biden either. And also, we don't know how many of them there were to begin with. I do have real questions about like, is this just professional conservatives showing again that they do not actually drive the bus, that Trump is driving the bus? Yeah. And I mean, the the uh, the related point about that is that I just feel like the kind of people who follow Supreme Court cases and know who appointed which justices and like how this all wins together, those are exactly the kind of people where you say like an unenthusiastic vote counts as much as an enthusiastic vote. And that like, that's the margin that they are really on is the like, oh my God, this is great. Or is it a like, eh, we got to do what we can because that RBG vacancy is coming up, right? Whereas the different margin is like the, you know, sporadic voters, right? And when people in their community are excited about something, right? Like clearly Donald Trump, right? Like the Trump movement of 2016 felt to a certain segment of the population, I think primarily rural whites who hadn't gone to college and who weren't very religious, right? That there were a bunch of people in that demographic who previously had seen American politics as not engaging them, right? A kind of a war between woke big city liberals and these like churchy Southerners. And they were like, I don't know, man, like they just don't get it. And then Donald Trump came on and a lot of people who fit that that description were like, yes, this is for me now. Republican Party politics, like people have MAGA hats. We're going to build a wall, right? We're going to be like, we're going to stick it to the feminists, but not really in a churchy way. Right. right. In a Donald Trumpy kind of way. And and so there were like there were people who really liked that and like got engaged in American politics as something that was relevant to them. But that just doesn't strike me as like the kind of people who care about John Roberts's. Right. Exactly. That was something um, I in my piece on social conservatives in the court, I talked about how um, there is. Even describing this debate seems strange, but there was an article on a conservative outlet called The American Conservative that described uh, the website OnlyFans, which is um, widely used by adult film performers. And the author made the argument of like, this makes me wish that we had essentially a um, like Islamic regime in this country to make this stop happening. And in response, an adult film actress wrote an opinion piece in The Federalist describing her own conservative conservatism as like sex and rock and roll Republicans as, you know, we don't really care much about, um, you know, these specific ins and outs of social conservatism and all of these Christians trying to push us out. is just going to make us mad. But, you know, we love God and we love drinking and we love listening to rap music and complaining about Nancy Pelosi 
And, you know, this is we all support Donald Trump. And, you know, when you're trying, you how dare you talk about the millions of Republicans who enjoy so pornography, a, a porn actresses for Trump? Yes, yes, yes. And so but, I, you know, I made the point that essentially if you have a tent that is supposed to include social conservatives who want to ban pornography and are asking the attorney general to like get gear back up obscenity prosecutions. And then you also have an adult film actress named Brandy Love, who is talking about how like, you can't ignore my fans. You can't talk about this. I'm like, I don't know how you get all these people together. And clearly one of these groups of people cares a lot about the Supreme Court and thinks a lot about Amy Comey Barrett and thinks a lot about like how Neil Gorsuch may have betrayed the conservative movement. And the other group absolutely does not. And somehow the Republican Party is supposed to make both of these groups happy, which they've attempted to do so with culture warring that doesn't require anyone to do anything. There's a great piece Matthew Walther wrote about the new social conservatism that is essentially like, you know, if you have someone who just says, I love the flag and the Me Too movement has gone too far, that isn't asking anyone to do anything. So the Republican Party responds with that and with tax cuts. And so I think that that is a challenging line to walk and the Republican Party has just decided not to. So th- this gets back to the enthusiasm, the, like, the question of whether enthusiasm matters, because you have just described a constituency that is all fired up and that like and has nowhere to go. Right. Like that nothing is being asked of them because they are fired up. And like, arguably, maybe that is the secret sauce here, maybe it's much easier to express enthusiasm to a pollster when you know that enthusiasm is just a matter of like being angry on the internet and not like, oh, let's see, am I committed enough to this candidate to go, you know, to to spend some hours phone banking? I'm not. Therefore, I am going to say I'm not that enthusiastic. But because of the fanishness of the kind of Trump constituency, it is not surprising that they're at super high enthusiasm levels, but like there was a lot of discussion in the first term of the Obama administration of whether they could build the political infrastructure that could turn the 2008 coalition into a durable democratic coalition. And the conclusion, both in terms of like individual, you know, organizing for America kind of organizations that were supposed to be that infrastructure, and in terms of the broader political project was that that did not work. That like, as Matt was saying earlier in the episode, there was just some kind of alchemy in Obama as a candidate that you can't replicate with really good party organization or that the party organization just wasn't that good. There hasn't been a lot of discussion of is the Donald Trump campaign or campaign for 2020 trying to build something durable or are they relying on are are they assuming that their candidate has the same kind of alchemy? And like, if they do assume that it's the same kind of alchemy, that's not just about the people who are super all in for the president now. That is about the, you know, again, that's about turning out every single person in Florida who voted for your dude last time, even the ones who are like older and concerned and telling pollsters they are concerned about the coronavirus, even as they say they're likely going to vote for Donald Trump. Like, it's a very tricky thing to you know it's a very tricky needle to thread and i'm not i think that the trump campaign you know could be doing you know like i'm not obviously like they have their theory of the case but 
it seems plausible that if you asked more of some of these big fans, like if you asked them to encourage others to vote by mail, if you asked them to like, you know, to phone bank for Trump to to go out there on election day and like drive people to the polls and that kind of thing, they would probably be willing to do it. But the disinterest in running a conventional campaign is appears to be so deep in Trump world just because they did it okay once that it's not, you know, I'm kind of, I'm wondering if they're essentially leaving enthusiasm on the table by not mobilizing it. We we desperately need to take a break. Um, so let's, let's do that. And then uh, I, I want to talk about the Hispanic vote because yes. it's weird. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So as Biden has opened up this kind of big lead in the polls, as you would sort of expect when somebody is running seven to eight points stronger than Hillary Clinton, he is generally running stronger with all kinds of people. Um, He's running uh, stronger with with white people. He's running about even with African-Americans because there's only so low you could go there. Um, But by reversed sort of small gains that Trump had made with African-American men, Uh, Biden's doing better with old people. He's doing better with women. He's doing better with men. Uh, Biden is doing maybe even with Latinos, probably worse than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. Um, Is this very controversial subject in the polling community as to specify exactly what the 2016 election results are? But suffice it to say that that's what it hinges on. There's one baseline according to which Biden is currently doing 
flat with, with Hillary, even as he does better with everyone else. Another baseline, according to which he's actually lost ground. And it's strange because, you know, um, Trump has obviously not expressed a lot of enthusiasm for uh, Latino contributions to the American uh, cultural melange. Um, and also, unlike with African-Americans, like there has been this somewhat hilarious like Trump black outreach uh, throughout the course of his presidency, which has been offset by a lot of sort of fairly overt racism. But it's clearly a thing that they have done. Uh, whereas there has really been no, like, now Donald Trump is going to try to show like Mexican Americans or Puerto Ricans or any group of people other than uh, Cuban emigres that he cares about do at all. Even Venezuelan emigres. Sure. Yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> a, a related, a related kind of kind of issue. Um, and when you delve into the polling, though, I mean, it's it's a quite broad phenomenon. It's not a Florida specific sort of thing where there's been right. a little bit of a of, of a Trump bump. And some of it comes from the fact that for at least as the at the time the polling was done, there was just less concern about the pandemic uh, among Hispanics than there was among white voters. I think most of the people I spoke to just expected that that would change as the locus of the outbreak moved to Texas, Arizona and California, um, you know, which is, this is the kind of thing where you just have to follow up. Um, but it was paired with the fact that it was just very low levels of like awareness of Joe Biden, who is not exactly an unknown figure on the national stage or like a fresh face who we desperately need introduction to. Uh, but for people who, you know, it's a very working class demographic. It's a demographic that has some people who are not super fluent in English and has generally had lower levels of attention to American political news than white or, or black people. And the thing everybody said was just people did not have, Latinos did not have a strong impression of Joe Biden. So it's not an enthusiasm, but also not a like specific lack of enthusiasm, more just like a genuine lack of enthusiasm. Like they'd heard he was the guy who wasn't Donald Trump. <laughs> who, who's to say, right? And, it, and it's left a lot of Democratic pollsters concerned that Biden is going to be defined very much by negative advertising about him. Uh, because we're not getting a like, precisely because Biden is so well-known, like notionally well-known, people aren't doing stories like cover story, like what's up with Joe Biden, right? Like it seems like such a boring assignment. He's not being like introduced to the public in some exciting way. Um, there's nothing interesting about the like old white former vice president becoming the Democratic Party nominee. Nobody's I mean, like, how do you do it? That like Donald Trump, any given 24 hour period that is not about Donald Trump is met with an effort to make the next 24 hour period about Donald Trump. Like it, it's not just that Joe Biden is like both well known and kind of vanilla as a brand. It's that Donald Trump is doing a very successful five year running effort to make everything about him. Uh, Trump loves attention in a slightly odd way. Anyway, it was interesting to me because I am absolutely 100% part of the, like, political media problem here, where it's like, I, like, Joe Biden has been a national political figure literally my entire life. 
So the idea that like people need more information about him would just not have occurred to me. Uh, but of course, lots of people don't pay that much attention to politics. And like, yes, he's an important politician this whole time, but he's never been the focus of attention, including now when he's likely to become president of the United States. There's like not that much talk about Joe Biden and like who he is or what he might do. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of an odd situation. It's challenging because what this ultimately means for November, we don't know. And I, I'm fascinated that, yeah, and, and all of this, all of this conversation about enthusiasm, this conversation about how people are defined, it, it's particularly challenging because I think that we've seen from Trump that his play is, I'm going to go after just my voters and not even my voters from 2016, the people who are enthusiastic about me right now in this present moment and everyone else eh, deal with it. And I think that the Biden campaign has a challenge because as Matt put it, how do you define someone who is largely defined for many voters, but not for the voters you want to go after, but you don't want to get into a, an entirely new conversation about who this person is, but you kind of have to so that the Trump campaign doesn't redefine him. And I don't know, it just, it's such a challenging question to ask, you know, ask like, how do you reach out to new voters, keep your voters and keep the opposition at bay all at the same time? Especially because I am familiar with the idea of you can't negative mobilization doesn't work. You can't get people to the polls solely based on let's beat the other guy. Like I am familiar with that being a truism of politics because of the Latino vote over the last like 10, 15 years. Right. Like there is so much evidence of pollsters and Latino activists calling out the Democratic Party for trying to mobilize Latinos not by promising them things, but by saying you don't want the other guy to win. And then like Latinos don't turn out like 2014 uh, Senate races being a pretty good example of this. There were it, it's just the you don't want the other guy message is not. go. We know for sure that it's not going to work with this particular group of voters. And like it's interesting to me that a lot of the argument for Biden kind of among people within like democratic elite circles was he's a known and familiar figure. He's not going to need reintroduction. You know, he's he can't Trump won't be able to define him. And like there is evidence that for whatever reason, gee, I wonder Donald Trump has not been as able to, you know, label Biden as he was Hillary uh, in, in the eyes of the public, even though Hillary Clinton was also, of course, a well-established political figure. Um, so there is a way in which that's working. But it, the fact that they're now encountering this issue with Latino voters makes me wonder why that didn't come up during the kind of informal vetting process that was like democratic discourse about the primary. Like, why wasn't anyone thinking about this a few steps in advance? I mean, I do think they were thinking about it, you know, and it's like Bernie Sanders really cleaned up in, in the primaries with with Latinos uh, for, for various reasons. But like one reason is that he spent a lot of money on that project, um, which turned out to not be that well optimized to the goal of becoming the nominee, uh, which is like one reason people don't necessarily do it. 
all, all the time. Um, but you know, I, I think the point about negative mobilization and its sort of failure for Democrats with that demographic group is interesting because it's probably not true that it doesn't work like at all, right? Like there was clearly among the phrase like suburban women, quote unquote, is used a lot to describe this demographic, but I, but I think that's imprecise, right? But there there's a cohort of sort of college-educated women uh, pro- professionals, you know, mostly, who... Mostly white. Mostly white, because that's the educational attainment yes. <laughs> profile in the United States, but right, who were very negatively mobilized by Donald Trump uh, in the 2018 midterms. It was really noticeable. Uh, women candidates did way better in Democratic Party primaries than they had done before. Uh, there was a huge amount of campaign contributions coming from women, right? And, and that was a clear negative mobilization case, right? Like a, a story existed in people's minds whereby the rejection of Donald Trump was an affirmation for themselves, right? In a way that positive voting sometimes is for people. And like, so you can form political identities around negativity. It's just that like what Democrats have tried to do with Hispanics has not succeeded at that. And one thing that I was always struck by when I wrote a piece a few years ago, it was looking at polling on, do you think that diversity makes America like better? And among white people who identify as liberals, that's like off the charts, right? Like a really constitutive element of liberal identity for white people, I mean, which is not that many white people, but like if you are white and you identify as a liberal, saying that diversity is an affirmative good is like really, really big. For Hispanics, that's not at all the case, right? Like the the numbers on that are not super high. Um, So the way that white liberals think about immigration and its interplay with the existence of Latino people in the United States and that interplay with American politics is just like not the same as how working class Hispanic people themselves see politics, Right. It's, it's almost like like white people have this effective enthusiasm for the idea of like importing a new demographic cohort that is supposed to help white liberals slay conservatism. And I don't think that's that like instrumentalized view is not, I think, with good reason, not how like actual native born American citizens with immigrant parents or grandparents see what's going on. And it's often discussed in a weird way. Like, I I sometimes feel like Democratic campaign operatives don't realize that, like, by definition, only American citizens are allowed to vote. I mean, I I do think that this is something where we're gonna have to see how the next, like, decade plays out. Because it is generally true that the existence of Hispanic or Latino as an identity category to begin with, as opposed to just, like, people you know, people mobilizing on behalf of their, like, national ancestry groups is a, a, like, synthetic construction that's made in part by, kind of, by anti-Latino racism. And so I'm I'm not, I, I think that there, the jury is still out on whether the kind of resurgence of white, like, of a white nationalism 
is going to mobilize native born and longer resident Latinos uh, in a way that we ha- that we wouldn't have seen like 10 years ago. I don't necessarily think that that's going to show up in the 2020 election because something you hear a lot in kind of like in, in Latino kind of voter mobilization is like you don't have the if you don't have a repeated practice of voting, it's just not something that occurs to you. If your parents didn't grow up like going to the polls every, you know, every first Tuesday in November, then you are less likely to think of it as, oh, of course, that's something I'm going to do. And like, that's obviously relevant, not only for people whose parents were non-citizens, but for people who were in like relatively disenfranchised communities. So I, I, I'm not sure that just feeling like more Latino, so to speak, or feeling more commonality with recent arrivals than they might have felt under the in the Obama era is going to show up in the polls. But I I'm not sure that the kind of split you're postulating between the like New Mexican who's been here for, you know, whose family has been here since before it was you know, since since it was Mexico and the person who's like just who, you know, came in 2014 and settled in New York. I think that that divide is not as real as it used to be. Break white paper. Yeah, sounds good. Do it. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So our white paper for today is from Giovanni Faccini, Brian Knight, and Cecilia Testa, and it is called The Franchise, Policing and Race, Evidence from Arrest Data and the Voting Rights Act. And this is a fascinating paper because it shows that Black arrest rates fell in counties uh, that were covered by legislation that was included in the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and also had a high rate of newly enfranchised Black voters because of the Voting Rights Act. And this largely focuses on the issue of sheriffs. Um, There's a quote in this that from the president of the National Sheriff's Association, where he says, so as opposed to a sheriff being appointed by a mayor or city council and being beholden to that city council, we are beholden to the people. We see our bosses as citizens that elect us. And it's fascinating because it talks about Share all sheriffs in the South and many municipal police chiefs are directly elected. So, for example, these sheriffs that you may know best, for instance, uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, elected and then uh, defeated most recently. And law enforcement also 
helps to, you know, the impact that law enforcement has on the treatment of minorities and department culture with regard to minorities has been well established. But this paper shows that when more people are able to vote, the black arrest rate drops. And because these arrests are carried out by sheriffs who are elected by these newly newly enfranchised black voters, that indicates a fascinating relationship between arrest rates and the people who are chosen to be sheriffs by the people who have just gotten the voting rights. Yeah. You know, something this made me think of is um, structural racism is very much a vogue topic to discuss at the moment and often is discussed in fairly uh, complicated kinds of ways. But but one thing you saw with the Voting Rights Act was that when African-Americans could not vote, um, that was discriminatory. Uh, But it also had downstream consequences due to a lack of political power. And just an obvious glaring fact about the United States of America, right, is like we have 50 states and each state gets two senators, but there's no black majority states right, even though it's 13% of the population. And in fact, states with almost no African-American population are greatly overrepresented in the Senate. You see all this gerrymandering in state legislatures, right? There's, there's like a million different features of the geography of American politics that dilute African-American voting power in ways that are not as uh, explicitly discriminatory as the pre-Voting Rights Act um, Southern disenfranchisement dynamic, but that are pretty, you don't need to do a lot of like self-examination to see that the Senate map is going to um, underweight African-American voice in American politics. It's like, it's right there in the contours of the lines and just kind of generally accepted as a feature of American society. Uh, But like, of course, like, the political system is responsive to people's voting power, right? If, right. You, if you just like gave left-handed people like six times as many votes as right-handed people, like something would happen as a result of that, right? Like it, it actually matters quite a lot in like a really, in a way that's almost like too crude and obvious to be worth like writing a book about or doing a lot of, like really interesting discussions. Uh, But it's such a salient feature of the American political system that like white votes count for more. Um, And it, it seems bad. Yes, that that is definitely true. Uh, I I think it's worth calling out. I mean, I really appreciated the structure of this paper. It is not common that the paper starts with, here are all of the tests that we did. You usually have to like see that way down in the bottom. And so, props to the paper authors for that one. Um, but it's it's worth you know like it's it if you're interested, obviously it'll be in show notes. It's worth skimming. But you know, it's worth calling out that they're finding routinely that white arrests are not at all dependent on these factors that like there is there are kind of both black and white arrests increase over the time period but black arrests increase only a teeny bit whereas white arrests increase a bunch the time period they're comparing is the early 60s to the late 70s so like given crime rates during that time that makes a certain amount of sense they're also finding that that 
disparity reduction is concentrated in misdemeanors. So like on the very logical assumption that police have more discretion to arrest in misdemeanor cases than felony cases, like it's reasonable to understand, to kind of look at what they're showing in terms of pre-VRA Black arrest rates and say, okay, a lot of that is police harassment of Black people. But the fact that white voters are kind of structurally overcounted and that they're political preferences do not appear relevant to how often white people are getting arrested is fascinating. Strongly suggests that that crime policy is like not as much about immediately felt safety as it is about kind of broader racial control. Um, And it's also interesting to think about this as like when you're talking about sheriffs versus police chiefs, like, yes, generally they're elected versus appointed, but police chiefs are being appointed by democratically elected officials. And the idea that just that extra layer of insulation, where instead of electing a sheriff directly, you're electing a mayor who's going to appoint a police chief, that that creates so much insulation from the community that you can just continue to in a heavily black, you know, in in a heavily black jurisdiction that is covered by the Voting Rights Act, continue to, you know, arrest black people at wo- at like wildly disproportionate rates and that no one will punish you is definitely something that I think we should be thinking about as we go into this, like an immediate round of local organizing around policing where city council members are being pressured to, you know, to cut police budgets, where mayors are being pressured to fire police chiefs. If that is going to have an impact, that's a very different finding than what we're seeing in this white paper in which, you know, just having one layer of, well, if you're not literally the person being elected, it doesn't particularly matter. You know, you you can continue to do what you were doing police-wise and not face a political repercussion from the Black community. I mean, it, it makes me wonder about about salience, though, right? That you know, if you're having a race for sheriff, then obviously questions of what the police department should be doing are right. going to be highly salient in that election, like all the time. Uh, and maybe just nobody will vote in the sheriff's election because they don't care about policing and crime control issues. But to the extent that you are going to vote in a sheriff's election, it sort of has to be because you care about the sheriff's department and its conduct, whereas there are a lot of different things happening in municipal politics. And, you know, issues sort of float up and down the agenda. Like right now, this summer, like the conduct of police departments has become a very high salience uh, political issue, which, you know, in my lifetime has been the case sometimes, but mostly in the early 90s when the crime rate was very, very high. And people, there was intense, like, ordinary normal people like wanted to put in mayors who would represent themselves as like going to be able to do something about that. But then, you know, for most of the 21st century, it just hasn't been a big deal in municipal politics, right? Like the crime rate was floating downward from a relatively low level and people were worried about schools or bike lanes or a million other things, if you turn police reform into a front rank political topic, it's possible that it starts to look more like 
sheriff's elections. And then the question is like, what is the what is the staying power of that mobilization as other things, you know, kind of come and go in life? Um, and you know, th- there's a lot on a given mayor's docket. Although interestingly, I mean, the police department is something that at least in formal terms, the mayor has a lot of control over in a way that they sometimes don't over other things that people are interested in. I, I do think, though, that the issue of you know crime salience seems largely untethered to what the crime rate is actually doing at any given moment, and especially in municipal sheriff's elections, in which you know, you are, especially in areas um, in much of the South where sheriffs are widely elected, where the crime rate in the area that the municipality actually is is extraordinarily low, uh, largely because the population is low. And yet the concept of crime remains like a really useful cudgel. I think that that decoupling happened a long time ago um, in which you you can run as a tough on crime sheriff in an area that has very little crime. And at no point will anyone point that out as being a kind of a strange argument. So I think that 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 remains a particular challenge and that like even how we talk about crime or crime rates or what what causes crime to go up or down. I think that that gets tied into this in a way that's fascinating because the salient, you know, whether or not police reform remains salient, the concept of crime and what to do about it is, in my view, always salient. I mean, I think that one of two things is true, either the kind of overwhelming weight of these like trends over the last half century where crime isn't consistently a high salience issue to most people where it is easily hijacked by the politics of law and order you know where the people who are most affected by policing practices are politically less enfranchised and therefore more less able to do something about it and the people who are more enfranchised don't care as much and therefore are likely to like make choices based on feelings or affect rather than based on the consequences of those policies. Like either all of that is going to continue to be true and it's going to doom the current efforts for policing reform or reimagining or abolition or like whatever noun you want to stick there. Or we are looking at a generational shift in which a critical mass of white people in the left and center left understand law enforcement, not as an issue of crime, but as an issue of racial justice and increase its salience accordingly to them so that it's no longer an issue where the people who really care about it are the law and order folks, uh, where the mobilization is primarily happening in the left center left. And then like a lot of things can get done that were previously unimaginable, but also a lot of these trends that we're talking about that have been true for a half century or more are going to have to get reversed or like will consequently be reversed. And we don't know how you know, we don't know where things are going to settle. Um, But the weight of the evidence is pretty strong that generally, you know, that, that like just a lot of things are going to have to change about how people make make electoral decisions in order for the kind of current push to go anywhere in the long run. All right. Yeah. It's a long run. Um, (laughs) Sorry. 
there you go. Um, we, we'll just have to see how it all it all plays out. Dara's always looking forward to the future. I'm always uncertain about the future. It's not quite the same thing. All right. Well, fair enough. Um, thanks to uh, our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Friday.